The scripture reading for today's sermon will come from Colossians 3, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 17 together. Hear now God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Father, we're grateful to be here today in your presence, having drawn near to the heavenly tabernacle made without hands, having drawn near to the throne upon which you sit, which is a throne of majesty and authority and also a throne of grace. And we are here to receive the grace and the mercy from you that we need every single day. And we uh, we understand and we are confident that you dispense that grace to us. You give that grace to us by way of your living and active word. And so we are here to hear your voice today. We are here to meditate on everything that you have spoken in your word. And we ask, Father, that you would give us understanding. Holy Spirit, be with us and illuminate the meaning of these words to our minds and impress them deeply into our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you will continue the work that you have begun in us to sanctify us, to make us more and more to resemble the very image of the glory of Christ as you conform us 
into His image, for we are in Him. And as Paul says here, our lives are hidden in Him with you. And so, Father, we pray, give us grace and transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. Help us to take every thought captive. Help the words of my mouth and help the meditations of our hearts this morning to be pleasing in your sight as you work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So several weeks ago, and many of you, several of you here know this because you were there, I had the privilege of going to Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada to preach a series of messages on the theme of union with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So a bunch of people from the church here came to be a part of that conference and we took a look together at a number of places in God's Word where He reveals to us that our fundamental identity, what defines us most significantly as human beings who are created in the image of God, has everything to do with whether we are, on the one hand, in Adam. And so, naturally in Adam, in bondage to sin and under the curse of sin and at enmity with God and destined for everlasting death and condemnation, all of that is what it means to be in Adam. And when we come into this world, that's what we are by definition. More than any circumstance or or more than any experience, or more than any other achievement, or more than any relationship in our lives, what defines us is that we are in Adam when we come into this world. And the question is, are we in Adam or are we in Christ through faith in Him? Because being in Christ through faith in Him means to be dead to the bondage and dominion of sin. And it means to be raised up with Jesus Christ in order to be able to walk in newness of life. It means to be made a new creation in Christ Jesus. It means to be free from the curse of sin. Free from the dominion of sin. Free from condemnation. It means to be forgiven. And it means to be justified by the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. And reconciled to God instead of His enemies. Adopted as his beloved children and destined for an eternity of everlasting life in the great blessing of his presence and his glory. And so that's the question. Are we in Adam or are we in Christ? Nothing else matters because the answer to that question matters eternally and nothing else does. And so at the conference that we were at in in Nevada, we looked at scriptures like Romans 5, which talks about why we're in Adam. We looked at Philippians 3, which talks about the righteousness that comes from God because there's no righteousness that can come from ourselves that will get us from being in Adam to being in Christ. We looked at Romans 6, we looked at Galatians 2, as we dug into this great truth of what it means to be in Christ, united with Him in death, and resurrection, and everlasting life, and the importance of that truth and reality for how we live our lives in this world. And then here at this church, a few weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, and what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us, to to love according to the definition of love that God is. And then last week, of course, we looked together at Galatians chapter 5. 
and that great chapter of Scripture that teaches us the, dis the distinction and the difference between walking according to our flesh and walking according to the Holy Spirit of God, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as we keep in step with Him by communing with God in prayer and by saturating our minds and our hearts with His living and active Word. All of that has to do with what it means to be in Christ Jesus, to be new creations in Him. And one of the passages during the conference that we were at that I, that I wanted to get to but we didn't have time for that particular weekend is this awesome chapter here of Colossians chapter 3. So what I want to do today on the heels of all of that, especially for those who were at the conference and even for those who weren't, is to spend time together in the first 17 verses of this chapter to expand on what we meditated on there for the benefit of those who were there in terms of what it means to be in Christ and also for the benefit of everyone who wasn't there because this is so critically important for us to understand and to have a growing grasp of in terms of what it really means to be a Christian. What does that mean? And to live life in the way that God designed it to be lived and to glorify God and to enjoy Him in our lives. So we're going to look together in the next three weeks or so at this passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now the book of Colossians was written to a church in the city of Colossae, which was a church that Paul had never actually been to. It's a church that got planted apart from Paul by disciples of Paul. He'd always wanted to visit this church. He'd heard good things about the church and the teaching there and the leaders there and the, the quality of the faith of the believers there. And he wanted to go and minister to the Christians in Colossae, but he'd been prevented by all of the providences that God had ordained in his life, including an imprisonment. And while he was in prison, unable to go to Colossae, a leader from the church in Colossae named Epaphras came to visit Paul and asked Paul for help because the church back in Colossae was facing trouble from, as we've seen so often in our studies of the New Testament books, they were facing trouble from false teachers who were coming and teaching things that were not in line with God's truth and, and the people in the church were being confused and misled by this teaching. And these teachers, what they were doing was putting an unbiblical emphasis on things like mystical experiences, encounters with spiritual beings, angelic beings, which was supposed to give you more in your life as a Christian than what you have in Jesus. That's what they were saying. Well, it's good that you believe in Jesus. It's good that you trust Him for salvation for your sins. But if you really want to experience the good stuff, you need to have these mystical encounters spiritually with other spiritual beings besides Jesus. There's more than Jesus, they were saying. And there was also an emphasis on what's called asceticism, which, which is a, a severe kind of of self-discipline and pietism where you deprive yourself of any kind of indulgence or pleasure or fun in this world, enjoyment in this world, because you think that that's the way to avoid evil from polluting you because you think evil's out there and not primarily in here. And so by avoiding anything fun in this world, you can make yourself much more holy than you would be if all you were was in Christ Jesus. So the common theme is these false teachers keep teaching that there's something more 
than Jesus that you need. There was a biblical emphasis on legalism. You can predict that and see that coming, right? Treating biblical standards of morality as as regulations, but to be kept in your own strength in order to get God's favor. Trying to be holy apart from the power and the work of the Holy Spirit within us, like we saw last week, and apart from faith. Trying to earn God's favor or establish our eternal confidence or our assurance or our hope on the basis of what we do instead of on the basis of everything that Jesus is and what he's done. There's more, they said, see? You can't just trust Jesus, you've got to work for it. And so legalism was adding our works to the works of Jesus as a basis of confidence of our standing before God. And there are all kinds of other ways too that these these false teachers were, were basically diminishing Jesus. They were dethroning Jesus. He's good and you need Him, but He's not everything and He's not the Lord and He's not the King of your life. They weren't completely denying Him. See, and that's what made the false teaching so pernicious and dangerous. They taught that He was a, a real person. They taught about His character and His nature that he was a holy man, but they denied his deity. They relegated him to a, a, a created spiritual being who was just one among many spiritual beings that were necessary for us to experience and encounter and follow along the journey of spiritual growth. If it sounds familiar to you, it's because the New Age movement and many false religions even still today purvey this kind of deception. They diminish Jesus. He's great, but he's not everything. And so this is why their teaching was so dangerous. They they affirmed Jesus in many ways. They ascribed great importance to Jesus in many ways, but not the importance that is real about him, not the importance that he deserves. They represented him as a, a necessary and important part of the enlightened spiritual life, but that's all he was, just a part. One among many. One source of wisdom among many. One step along the way to salvation, enlightenment, and and spiritual maturity among many. One piece of the overall pie. And so Paul, he wrote this letter of Colossians for Epaphras to take back to the church there. And in this letter, what he wants to do is two things. He wants to establish and strengthen the Christian's confidence in who Jesus Christ truly is. And that's what he does in the first two chapters. Then what he wants to do in the last chapters of the book is to emphasize who we are in Christ Jesus. And that's what he's doing here in chapter 3. And so for the next several weeks, I want to look at Paul's teaching here. And, And the thing that we need to focus our minds and our hearts on is this. Paul says, look at verse 1 of Colossians 3, that we have been raised with Christ, with Christ. That's the all-important truth in terms of what we are in Him. We know and we believe by the God-given faith that we have in our hearts that we, we confess that on the third day after Jesus was crucified, He was raised from the dead. He really died, right? He didn't just pass out. There on the cross. He didn't just slip into a coma because the the pain and the trauma that he endured was so overwhelming physically. He died in every sense that the word death implies. 
his physical bodily life ceased. His heart stopped beating. He stopped breathing. His, his brain function stopped. He died. And they wrapped his body in grave clothes and they buried him in a tomb. And his body lay in that tomb until the third day, until Sunday morning, when he rose from the dead because his heart started beating again. And blood started coursing through his veins and air through his lungs. And he left that tomb. He left the place of the dead because he had conquered death itself, right? Death isn't just a natural phenomenon. Death is is the wage, it's the penalty for sin. If there was no sin in this world, there would have been no death in this world. Well, Jesus took our sins upon Himself on the cross. He He took the death penalty upon Himself and suffered it fully to the uttermost as our substitute. We should have died, but He died instead. He suffered as the sacrificial Lamb of God, taking our place on the altar of sacrifice. And His sacrifice was absolute. It was so perfect, it was so pure, it was so full, it was so sufficient, that He not only freed us from the penalty of death, so that we could revel in the hope of everlasting life one day, He actually, on that cross, defeated death entirely. Because he who knew no sin took our sin upon himself and when he'd fully paid the price for us, freeing us from its penalty, freeing us from its bondage and its curse, there was was nothing in him anymore. No more sin, right? For death to lay hold of, see? There wasn't a single speck of sin after that sacrifice. No stain, no impurity, no unrighteousness for, for death to cling to, for death to to attach itself to, to grab hold of, to gain any kind of foothold or or purchase whatsoever in Christ Jesus after he died. And so, like a a rock climber trying to climb a a piece of polished glass, no handholds, no toeholds, nothing to grab onto, no place for any purchase, just a perfectly vertical Perfectly flat surface, smooth surface, right? You can't climb that without suction cups or some kind of equipment. Well, death didn't have anything to to hold on to when it came to Jesus. It slid off of him because of the absolute purity and holiness of his person. It fell completely away from him because he had vanquished it. And so that's why he rose from the grave on the third day. That's a, that's a marvelous and a magnificent truth and reality about who Jesus is and what he accomplished there on the cross. But see, there's even more to it than that. For us to realize and for us to revel in as Christians. And it's this, it's, it's that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, Paul says we have been raised with him. That's what, he's, that's what he's talking about here. In this, It's this relationship that true Christians, true believers in Christ have to Jesus, which is an absolutely 
unique and qualitatively different kind of relationship from any other relationship that exists anywhere in the universe, such that by being related to Jesus, by being in Jesus and Him in us, His death becomes our death and His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And this is, the, this is a relationship that Paul calls all throughout the New Testament. He calls it being in Christ. Being in Jesus. So what's that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Now, this is a phrase, in Christ is a phrase that Paul uses all over the place in the 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament. John uses it too. Peter uses it as well. But over 200 times just in Paul's writings, he talks about this reality of Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, being in Jesus Christ. So, for example, Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Something has happened to us where we have been engrafted into Him in a way that causes us now to be dead to sin where before we were in bondage to sin and it had dominion over us. So what he's talking about is the Christian's essential relationship to Christ. And he's saying something much, much more than just, now you've come to believe, now you've come to accept that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. That happened in history. And so now what you need to do is think about that a lot and try to live your life in such a way that you don't do the sinful kinds of things that Jesus died for so much, right? It involves that, but... This is so important to get. That's not all that the Christian life is. And if that's all that your life is, just following the example and the principles, then you don't understand the Christian life at all. Because you'll never be able to do that unless you're in Christ Jesus. It's it's not just trying in light of our understanding of his sacrifice to stop doing the kinds of things that he made the sacrifice for. That's never going to work. Paul's saying that the essence of the believer's relationship to Jesus is such that we don't just believe in his death and resurrection and try now to frame up our decisions and choices accordingly. I mean, that literally is how every other world religion works. They provide... You, you latch on to some religious system of belief. It provides you with some kind of emotional or psychological inspiration or motivation. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's a, a, an aesthetic appeal. Sometimes it's the promise of, of a, like a great mystical experience. The allure of some hidden secret knowledge or wisdom or strength or power. It's, it's an appreciation a, a lot of times for some inspirational figure. And so we get motivated and say, we're going to do it this way, according to the tenets of this religion. That's not what Christianity is. The religions of the world provide some kind of personal inspiration and motivation, but they don't change what you are. They either either threaten you with a stick or they hang a carrot at you, but it's up to you to change your course. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity means that we become 
spiritually engrafted into the person of the risen Jesus Christ, our relationship toward Him isn't just being influenced by Him, it's being spiritually united to Him. So here's an illustration. It's like this. It's like seeing a really super fast, high-performance sports car tearing down the road past you, going 150 miles an hour. And you go, wow, that's, that's, a, that's incredible. That, the power of that car is awesome. The speed that that thing can get to is awesome. I wish I could move that fast, just personally, just by myself. And then, see, now I'm inspired by the sports car and by its awesome power and speed. And, and I'm motivated now to try to go that fast. So I take off. I take a deep breath and I summon all my strength and I start sprinting down the road after the sports car, fast as I can to try to go 100 miles an hour, 150 miles an hour. It's just it's a silly thought, right? You're never going to do it. You're not going to get to anywhere near 150 miles an hour ever, 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 ever. And no matter how hard you try and how fast you run, you're going to fall over after about 100 yards or maybe 200 if you're in really good shape because you can't sustain it. You'll never get there. But what if the super fast sports car came roaring up and stopped right in front of you and opened the door and you got in. Then you could go that fast. See, you've got to be in the car, not just motivated by the car. And that's the difference, see, between being motivated religiously by the world's religions or even by the example of Jesus Christ as someone who isn't truly a believer, they, they get motivated by him and they try their hardest to run as fast as he runs, to be as holy as he is, and, and it won't work. They tear off down the road, spritting under their own steam. That's what the Galatians were tempted to do. Trying to match his power and holiness in their own strength. It's the, the Christian life is the difference between that and the true Christian life, which is being in Jesus. And what that means to be in Him is that everything that He's done and everything that He is, His righteous, holy life, His sacrificial death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven, His enthronement eternally at the right hand of the Father in heaven, all of that defines everything about us if we are in Him. So being in Christ means being united to Christ, mean, and, that, and that means being united to His death. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. That's what we are now. Our nature towards sin has changed. So we're not just grateful that Jesus died. We're dead ourselves to sin in Christ, which means sin no longer has dominion over us. It remains in us, but we don't let we don't need to let it call all the shots in our lives because it's dead and it has no more power. We're dead to it and it has no more power to, to dictate how we live. And being united to Christ means being united to his resurrection. So not just really impressed and astounded that, that Jesus conquered death and actually rose from the grave, but, but more than that, actually we are united to his resurrection in him so that we are raised to newness of life and made to be new creations, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is what? 
impressed with Christ? Really convinced that Christ's way is the right way for us to try to follow? No, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So, because the Christian's relationship to Jesus is this way, so that, so that more than just believing in his death and resurrection, through faith we are actually united to him, united to his death and resurrection. His death becomes the death of our sinful fleshly nature. His resurrection becomes the resurrection of us to a new nature, a holy new creation, not just a refurb. In him, because all of that's true, it affects the way we live. Because we, what, what Paul's saying here is you have to understand what you are. And stop living like what you were. In Christ, we're united to his sinless, holy, righteous life. Which means we're justified because his righteousness gets accounted to us even when we don't have any of our own. And our sin... God accounted to him even when he didn't have any of his own. And since we're united to his holy and righteous life, being in him means that he is living in us, abiding in us. He's living through us. He's sanctifying us. He's, he's growing us in holiness and maturity and righteousness. And so Paul can say, I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who's living in me. His life is the definition now of my life. And the life I live in this body, this flesh, I live by faith in Him who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's what the Christian life is. It's union with Jesus. It's His glorious life in us now forging our lives. In Christ, we're also united to His ascension into heaven. Right? Several weeks after the resurrection, he ascended before the apostles' very eyes into heaven. He went up with a cloud unto the ancient of days. We're, we're united to that such that he is with us in, in his ascended form at the right hand of God in all of the fullness and all of the investiture with, with divine heavenly power and authority that He has. He is with us because we are in Him. He is with us with all that He is as we face whatever trials and endure whatever hardships that there are for us to face and endure in this world. Didn't, it, that's what He meant, right, when He said to His disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 28 that all authority in heaven and earth has been granted to me and behold, I am with you. Not just as a pleasant thought, but literally with you always, abiding in you, united to you, even to the end of the age. In Christ, we're united to His enthronement at the right hand of the Father, so that every moment of our Christian lives that we struggle against sin, that we struggle against temptation, fleshly desires, is a moment that we're struggling not by ourselves, but struggling in Him and Him with us at the foot of the heavenly throne, which is a throne of grace. And so you're able to face those temptations with His power and not just your own and not just with whatever motivation you can get by thinking good thoughts about Him. And when you fail, every sense of guilt that you experience 
you, you, as you realize your sinfulness and your failures and your weaknesses and your shortcomings, every, every experience of shame and guilt like that is experienced there with Christ where He sits eternally on His gracious throne of grace interceding for us. See? Which means, which means whenever the devil says, aha, there's another sin that they're guilty of and, and a reason why they're unworthy of your presence and your favor and your blessing, Christ is there to say, I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I died for that one. That one's covered. Interceding for us, mercifully swatting away every single accusation that the evil one wants to lodge against us and, and proclaiming Jesus is with divine, heavenly, everlasting authority every single time saying, my blood is sufficient for all of your sin. Every minute. Every minute that you lack assurance because you look at your sin and you say, maybe Jesus didn't really die for me. Maybe Jesus couldn't really die for a sinner such as this. That Every minute that you say that is a minute spent at the foot of the merciful throne where he looks down upon you with tender and gentle and divine patience and love and says, my child... It's okay, you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven, you've been justified, you've been glorified in me already in my Father's presence and eyes. My perfect love casts out all fear and I do not condemn you. So, so see, the, the question in any in any and every aspect of our lives as Christians, our lives in Him, our, our lives where it's no longer we who are living but Him, the, the question is, when we're struggling with temptation, it's not so much, I'm facing this temptation and am I strong enough to resist it? If that's your strategy for dealing with sin, I can motivate myself and inspire myself and, and muster the strength enough by by realizing what Jesus did for my sin on the cross. And that's going to motivate me enough so that when I face temptation, I can say, no, I'm strong. And then guess what? You're going to fail. You're not going to be strong enough. Because like we said last week, you'll be looking in here instead of up here for the strength. And when you start looking in here then and, and looking for a self-strength in order to face and fight and defeat temptation, then... Self-desire is going to overwhelm your self-strength really fast. The question isn't, am I strong enough to resist temptation? The question is, am I in Christ strong enough? Is Christ strong enough for this temptation? Because I'm in Him. Am I fast enough to run 150 miles an hour all the way to Boulder Creek? No. But if I get in a Ferrari or a Bugatti, am I fast enough? Yes. Because it's not just me, it's, it's who I'm in. It's, is Christ who is in me strong enough? The question when we're struggling with fear is not, will I be overcome? Will I be defeated? Will I be destroyed by whatever this scary circumstance is? It's, can Christ be overcome by it? And so will I in Him be overcome? Will Christ, who is living in me, be defeated or be destroyed by anything? And so it's easy to see the difference, right? Is there any power 
that can defeat Jesus? Is there any sin that weighs more in the scales of God's justice than the blood of Jesus weighs? Than His all-sufficient, everlasting mercy and grace weighs? Is there any accusation of guilt that can be pressed against us from anyone which Jesus is unable to answer? Is there any, is there any problem which Jesus is unable to handle? Is there any circumstance that Jesus can't deal with? Is there any storm that Jesus can't calm? Any raging sea that he can't command? Any deep water that he can't just walk right across the top of? Nope. Of course not. And so if we're in him, it's no longer we who live, but him who lives in us. Then is, is, is there any of that that can overwhelm us? Of course not. Not in Christ. You see why it's so important to recognize what we are in him. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah chapter 43, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I, the Most High God, the Great I Am, I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, and you are mine. So, because you're mine, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you because I'm there and I can't be overwhelmed. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be consumed for I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, I am your Savior. I am with you. So massively critical to understand this great reality of our union with Jesus Christ, who is all the fullness of God in bodily form. The great reality, the great awesome implications of what it means to be in Him. You see how massively important this is, significant this is, for every aspect of our lives, right? The reality, this, this is the whole basis of, of everything, for example, that Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Don't you love Romans chapter 8? Isn't it a massive encouragement? You know what Romans 8 is? Romans 8 is Paul just articulating all of the great implications of what it means to be in Christ Jesus as a Christian. Not just to be motivated by Him, not just to be comforted by what He's done in the past for us and promises to do in the future. That's all so important, but even more important, what does it mean to be in Him? Think about Romans 8 with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if Christ is in you, then although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. See? In Christ you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but in Him you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Christ we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. In Christ, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. In Christ, we are predestined and called and justified and glorified. In Christ, we say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can level any accusation against me if I'm in Christ? In Christ, we say amen to the great reality that that no one can bring any charge against God's elect. Because it is God who justifies. Who can possibly condemn Because Jesus Christ is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, and is at the right hand of God, interceding indeed for us, and we are in Him. In Christ, no one and nothing can ever possibly separate us from the love of the Father. If He's holding you with His all-powerful arms, what could pull you away? No power in this universe. In Christ, we are, you remember that Greek word, Nike? like the swoosh on the side of the shoe, we are more than conquerors. Hupernikamos. Overwhelmingly conquerors in Christ. In Christ we can draw near to the throne of grace. In Christ we rejoice to say, I am absolutely sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you get it? Don't just be motivated by Jesus. Don't just be inspired by Jesus, encouraged by Jesus, comforted by Jesus. Be in Him and recognize that you are in Him and know what it means to be in Him because it is all of life. So when Paul says there in verse 1 of Colossians 3 that we have been raised with Christ, this is the great and awesome and amazing spiritual reality that he's talking about. We're united to him in all of his holiness and all of his divine glory and victory and power and dominion and authority. We're in him. John Murray said that this doctrine, this this teaching that Paul sows all throughout the New Testament scriptures is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation and everything about the Christian life. This is the core of it. John Calvin said that, that this, central, this is the central foundational basis for both our justification. If you're not in Christ, how can you be called righteous before God if you don't have His righteousness covering you? You can't be. But Calvin says it's not just the foundational basis for our justification, but also our sanctification. How can you fight temptation unless you're in Christ? How can you become actually more and more conformed to the image of Christ unless you're in Christ? You can't run after Him on your own strength. You've got to be in Him. All that Jesus gloriously is, everything that He has marvelously done, His perfect spotless life and death and resurrection and ascension and enthronement, that is your life because you are in Him. In Christ, nothing can ever separate you from that and it's knowing and trusting that and resting in that reality that fuels and drives and defines our lives in him 
It's communing with Christ who is our life, as we talked about last week, that opens up the floodgates of His life in and through us. Not standing far from Him and throwing prayers like He's far off and then saying, throw me some earthly blessing that I might be comforted and have then the the strength and the resolve and the encouragement to do better or to stand firm. Now it's communing with Him who is our life that opens up the floodgates of His life in and through us. So, when Paul says right there in verse 1, if then, and we're going to take more time next week to look more depth in terms of what he's saying, but just know that that the force of that word if there at the beginning of verse 1 is much, much more like our English word since. There's nothing hypothetical about it. This is how you need to take it in this context. It's since then you have been raised with Christ Jesus. Because this is what you are and who you are in union with Him, because that's true and real, and you have been raised to newness of life, you're a new creation in Him. Since that's real and true, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Because, and again, we're going to dig into this more deeply next time so that we really have time to, but the essence of the exhortation here is simply We've got to live according to what we are. You can't look back at your past before Christ and think, well, that's what I am. And so I don't have any power to fight this temptation any more than I used to. You have to to live according to what you are in Christ. And it seems obvious. It seems like it goes without saying. But when it comes to the spiritual life, we've got to say it. We've got to tell ourselves what we are. Because... What we were when we came into this world was, was in sin, in bondage. We could, we could only sin. That's all we could do. You could choose, but you could only choose which sin. You couldn't choose to honor God, to please God. It wasn't in your nature. And so in our sin, that's what we were. We, we were not living according to the reality of thing, how things actually are. We were suppressing the truth. We were not living according to the reality of God's existence and holiness and lordship. Or to the reality that we're His creation made in His image for the sake of His glory. We were resisting all of that. We exchanged all of that truth for lies. And instead of living in submission to Him, we went through life doing what was right in our own eyes. And when we, when we do that, when we view life through the lens of our own sin and according to the paradigm that says that, that we're at the center of the universe and, and all we're able to do is what we want to do and what we desire to do and what we feel like doing, that denies God His rightful place of, of sovereignty and dominion and glory. And, and when we're living according to that paradigm, that's when we're charging down the path that seems right to us, but, but leads to destruction. And you've got to realize that's not what you are anymore. You're not the person anymore that says, whatever I feel is going to dictate what I do. Whatever I desire. Whatever seems right in my eyes. See, it's when we, it's when we that's, that's when you will for sure succumb to temptation and fleshly desire and stumble into all kinds of sin. That's when for sure you'll become lazy and apathetic and and self-indulgent in your life. 
and languish and discontentment and frustration and anxiety when things aren't going the way you want them to because you're all about you. But that's not what you are if you're in Christ. And if that's the way you're living, then that's, that's what leads to complaining and discontentment and bickering and bitterness and anger starting to characterize your life more and more and more. It's when the way that our relationship to the things of this world, like money and material things and pleasure and enjoyment and food and people and relationships and, and our reputation and the approval of others and, and the things that we experience and the feelings that we have. When we're focused on us, that, that's when our relationship to all of those things, even if they're not bad things in and of themselves, becomes an idolatrous relationship. Because we're, we're approaching everything and indulging in everything and using everything and enjoying everything from a posture that's not oriented to give glory to God and please God and honor God and live our lives as spiritual services of worship to God. But that, that's what we were. That's all we could do before. We were in absolute bondage to that. We were, we were dead in that sin and trade. We were unable to respond to God in any positive way. That was our natural posture. But that's not what we are anymore in Christ. And the thing is that old habits die hard, right? And without regular, determined, spiritual discipline to focus our minds on the things that are above, to focus our minds on Him and what we are in Him, without that regularly we're just going to gravitate back to that old spiritual posture and, and our lives are going to continue to languish in all of the idolatry and selfishness and greed and lust and bitterness and anger and discontentment which defined us when we were in Adam, when we were in sin, when we were spiritually dead. But see, that's not who you are now. Don't let that define you now. Don't, don't let that have dominion over you now. You're not in Adam anymore. You're not dead in sins and trespasses anymore. You are a new creation. You are in Christ, alive in Him. And we have to live according to what we are. That's what Paul's saying. And he's saying the only way to do that, where we're still living in this world, filled with all the things that we can see and hear and touch and smell and taste and feel, right? Really what he's saying here is... is it, it was the old man who was crucified. It was the old man who was dead in sin and trespasses. That's the one who lived primarily according to the five physical senses. As if the only things that mattered are the things that we can see and hear and feel and touch and smell and taste. And our desire for those things. That's what governed our lives. Paul's saying you've got to stop doing that now. Don't live primarily according to your five physical senses because when you were spiritually dead, that's the only way you could live. Those were the only senses that were operative in your life. So those five senses, they took it all in and then your fallen sinful mind processed it all and interpreted it all out of step with what God meant it for and twisted it according to your fallen sinful self-willed foolish darkened heart. But now, see, in Christ, we got to flip it all around. We got to walk by faith, not by sight. Now, faith, by, by which we're united to Christ, 
has got to become the predominant sense through which we see and understand and interpret everything in this world, our place in it, our lives, our circumstances, and the meaning of it all, all through the lens of faith. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You can't see Him with your physical eyes, but faith is the assurance of things unseen. And by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, faith gives more assurance than sight. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, Paul says here. Because you're a new creation in Him. Because you're united to Him. Because your life is now defined by Him and His life, His desires, His righteousness, His will, His holiness, His glory. What He thinks is funny and what He thinks is not funny. That's what defines you now. What He enjoys and what He detests. That's what defines you now. Got to set your mind on those realities of who He is who you are in Him if you want to have any hope of living in this world in a way that's characterized by peace and hope and love and joy and by the fruit of the Spirit, again, as we saw last week, instead of by the deeds of the flesh. And to seek the things that are above means simply to make the realities which God has revealed in His Word, the realities of heaven, the realities of God's existence, God's nature, God's holiness and sovereignty and His mercy in all that He is and all that He's done in Christ Jesus and all that He's made us to be in Christ Jesus, it means to make all of those realities the primary focus. It doesn't mean go be a monk and don't focus on anything else. It means make that the primary focus and the lens through which you see and enjoy Everything else that God has given you in this world to enjoy. Just don't make all of those other things the primary focus. And don't make the realities of, of heaven and God and His glory to be the focus of just the part of your life that comes to church on Sunday. And then as soon as you leave and as soon as Monday comes and you're back to work and back in the world you're back to living like what you were instead of what you are. You're back to sight instead of faith. You're back to the five senses primarily instead of faith. So it means to desire and to strive for the things that are above where Christ is in every single area and aspect of your life. To center your interests on Him and then let every other interest fall into its rightful place after that. And some of your interests, you're going to go... In Him, they don't have a place, rightfully, because they don't honor Him. They don't please Him, and i got to get rid of them. And others, you say, they've just been in the wrong place. They've been too much at the center. They've been in His place. And now in Him, centered on Him, I've got to put them in their proper place, and you'll enjoy them even more because you're enjoying Him even more. Allowing all of your attitudes, all of your ambitions, your whole outlook on life to be, to be molded and defined by your relationship to Jesus. This is what it means to be in Christ. It means that your allegiance to Him has to take precedence over any other earthly or personal allegiance. Otherwise, whatever it is, is an idol. That's what it means to seek the things that are above. 
And the verb that Paul uses there to seek the things that are above is, is in the present active imperative tense, which means seek it, do it, it's a command, but keep on doing it. Don't just do it once. Don't do it on Sunday only. Don't do it the first day of the week. Just keep on seeking the things that are above all the time. Frame your perspective and, and center your interests and conform your attitudes and ambitions and outlook. Let every activity in your life fall into submission to Christ and to His glory. Sure, you can go to a movie. Sure, you can play a game. Sure, you can read a book that's not the Bible. Enjoy it if it can fall into its place with Christ at the center. That's all it means. And let that be happening all the time and with everything. So verse 2 gives a little more interpretation, right, to this, this exhortation. Set your minds on the things that are above. That, that gets specific. J.B. Lightfoot says, You must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. And again, the verb is the same tense, present active imperative. Keep on setting your mind on the things that are above, not just on Sunday morning, not just during Bible study time or family devotion time or times of personal prayer and, and times of personal reading in God's Word. All the time, set your mind on the things that are above. All the time, think heaven, think eternity, think glory. Think Christ is seated at God's right hand, interceding for you, giving you the strength, giving you the power to resist every temptation and to live your life for His pleasure. That's how you frame your desires and ambitions and perspectives and reactions by all the heavenly realities and Christ's risen glory. So when you're tempted to sin, set your mind on the things that are above. Do you do that? Somebody told me the best thing the other day. He said, I was so tired, I was so exhausted, and I was discouraged, and I was down, and everything seemed dark, and I, and I didn't know what to do, and I knew I needed to read my Bible, but I was too tired, my eyes couldn't focus, and so they took their phone, and they had the Bible app on their phone, and, and it was one of those apps that will read it out loud to you, set it on the pillow. <laughs> and and I, think, I think she said she went through 10 chapters of Isaiah that way. Just listening to God's word and letting it fill her mind up and it just brought peace. It just brought comfort all the time. When you're tempted, set your mind on Jesus who is holy, who is pure, who is pierced, who is crushed, who has bled and died for your sin, who has so graciously forgiven you and justified you and made you to be a new creation and who has made your body to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Think on that. And then it will diminish your desire for the sin. When you're weighed down by despair or by guilt or by shame, set your mind on the things that are above. Draw near to the throne of grace. Fix your gaze on Jesus who's, who's risen in eternal victory over sin and death and, and enthroned with, with dominion and power and authority and interceding and saying, I don't condemn you. Fix your mind on Him and be encouraged and be strengthened. When you're afraid, Set your mind on His perfect love, which casts out all fear. Draw near. Commune with the sovereign God of the universe. Find rest. Find shelter. Find refuge in the one who commands the winds and the waves and the storms of your life. When you're weak, rest in the sovereign strength of Christ who is in you and Christ who is with you. When you need wisdom, 
draw near, fix your mind on the awesome realities of God's holiness and majesty and, and be filled with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. When things are good, and the lines have fallen in pleasant places, don't get complacent and start indulging too much in making those things central. Instead, draw near to God and set your mind on the great realities of His merciful fatherly care and, and be thankful and give praise to Him from whom all blessings flow. This is how we live, right? Every single day. In all ways, in every circumstance, through every trial, in the face of all kinds of temptation, since you have been raised with Christ, since your life is hid with Him in God, since it is Christ in you that is your hope of eternal heavenly glory, fix your mind all the time on what is ultimately real and on the reality of your union with Him because that's the only way that every other reality in your life takes its rightful place and makes any sense at all, in fact. Amen? We'll dig deeper next week, but let's pray together today, and then we're going to sing His praises as we draw near to the table to receive grace. Our God and our Father, thank You for Your Word in this awesome, majestic, and mysterious, incomprehensible even reality of what it means for us to be in Christ Jesus. Father, we know what You have revealed, and we can grasp it to the extent that Your Holy Spirit enables us, but truly... This is a truth that is tr too deep for us to fully comprehend and for us to plumb the depths of. But Father, we give you praise that our lives are hidden with Christ in you, that we have been raised up to newness of life, that sin has been conquered and vanquished, that death has been conquered and vanquished, that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, would you help us to understand who and what we are and daily to understand better who Christ is in all of His glory and majesty and everything that He's done. And would you fill us by your Holy Spirit with the presence of Christ and His holiness and His glory that we might be conformed more and more to His image and likeness and resemble all that pleases and honors and glorifies you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.